Dunbar has relished a life in the theatre. As a boy from Rockhampton, he ventured south to Sydney and quickly established himself as an in-demand vocalist. He became a regular on Channel 7's Sing Sing Sing, hosted by Johnny O'Keefe, thus launching a pop career. Rod toured the country doing gigs with other high-profile entertainers and attracted attention everywhere due to their national exposure through the new medium of television. Looking to expand the possibilities of his career, Rod was soon spotted by J.C. Williamson's Betty Pounder and encouraged to pursue a career in musical theatre. Early work consisted of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, the boy from Syracuse and Oliver, playing Noah Claypole, then growing into an extensive career performing in productions of Chicago, Company and Merrily We're All Along for the Sydney Theatre Company, tours of Are You Lonesome Tonight, South Pacific, Big River and Shout, his most recent performance being Dirty Dancing. But along the way, he experienced personal triumphs in the original Australian productions of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown and Godspell. It was in 1966, while working on Oliver at the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne, that he met a girl who was performing across the road at Her Majesty's Theatre in Funny Girl. That girl soon joined him in marriage, and together they have navigated the ups and downs, the joys and upsets of a life in the business. Rod and Dolores Dunbar have been married for 49 years, quite a feat for two performers in a precarious industry. I spent a delightful Sunday afternoon with Rod, as he reflected on an extensive career and offered advice on the longevity behind it, and the disappointment when an industry you love retires you. He's a font of knowledge and an engaging raconteur. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rod Dunbar. Break down and cry to me. Show me that one big Admit that you're sorry and break down. One that got the most airplay, which oh, uh, which is called Breakdown. Oh, Breakdown. So, all right, because so on YouTube, you, there I've said it again. Yeah. And little girl, it's time we parted. Yeah, well, they're straight from Sing Sing Sing. Right, but you you didn't record those. No, no. Oh, they were they were just numbers you sang on. Sang on the show. Right. Yeah, and I never kept anything because it, it it wasn't done. It was, it, we didn't have show. Didn't think of show reels or anything like that. But Vicky Forrest kept a lot of stuff, and Dordie somehow tracked her down. Who was Vicky Forrest? Vicky Forrest was on Sing Sing Sing. As and a I singer, think they tried to yeah, yeah. They tried to pair us up at one stage, you know. Oh. Yeah, Vicky kept a lot of things. She sort of did that sort of thing, and um, uh, she found this track. And what it is is her singing. Uh, this is how, how young and innocent she sings. I got a boyfriend. La, da, 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 da. And we're at the uh, 60th anniversary of the beginning of rock and roll in Australia at Bird RSL last year, and they played that clip, and then then they froze it, and Dordie said, "Look at look up the back, look up the back," and there are four guys up the back like that, and uh, two, three of them in sort of you know colourful shirts, the one in a plain shirt, and the one in the plain shirt was me. <laughs> And what happened was the biggie finished that number, I forgot all of this, and I walked towards her and the camera swung round and shot me doing that song. Little, little Girl It's Time. No, the we, other one. no I, there I've said it again. There I've said it again. And I sang the whole thing to her with the one in single camera shot by memory. And all you saw was Vicky's back, you see, the whole thing. So that's how that came that's why she kept it because it had followed her. And so it was a lucky thing that she had, and that's the only track that I've got of my time on Sing Sing. Only one. And I'm externally grateful in many ways that anything I recorded did not chart, because then I would have been a one-hit wonder for the rest of my career, having to sing that bloody song, you know, like Lucky Star, and I've I've been everywhere, all that thing. And that's why I was ungrateful that my... My career took that right-hand turn, which we'll get to. Yeah. 
I guess as, as performers, if you want longevity in the career, you've got to keep reinventing yourself, don't and, you? And diversifying. People, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. As I said, you know, uh, uh, I never learned to act. Uh, Williamson's, the much maligned at the time, shoved us on stage and we had to make sense of the dialogue. In, in that you didn't get a lot of rehearsal time? or Well, yes, we did, but, I mean, we didn't go to acting school. Right, OK. There was just... Often you would off be you ca- cast off the yeah, street. Yeah, you, you say that and you say that and you say that and then and once you were cast in the show, they've obviously said, oh, yeah, he'll be able to do that little bit and that little bit and that's how my career grew, by doing the little bits. And then, of course, you, you know, this pounder choreography uh, usually took me a week longer than anybody else with the trained dancers, the brain, because yeah. my brain is trained for piano. But we got there, and then I danced Ross Coleman. Thank you very much. That comes, and that's part. Of, that was the part of the growth that I probably unconsciously was looking for, because on Singsy we were kids just starting. As a kid growing up, was rock and roll your musical awakening? Was that the no, first musical yet. genre? Teenage, that you... teenage, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so rock and roll is my teenage music. Right. I'm so, a rock and roll generation. We uh, we were. 13, 14, I think, if you know, you'll know the film. Blackboard Jungle, Glen Ford, Rebellious Teenagers. The Re- first time, we were, this was a very straight country. And the first time we looked at that film, we couldn't believe how these bad guys, these, and the word teenage hadn't been coined yet, but these were slightly older than us. These boys in the film would have been 18, 17, 18 year olds. Uh, and Glenn Ford was their teacher, and that was the rebellious thing on the east side of New York. And then over the closing credits of the film, we heard one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, and the whole school went nuts. You've got to go and see this picture, just for that. Bill Haley. Bill Haley. And we, in the, in, in, in the, in the movie theatre, what was it called, the pictures, we were out of our seats and in the aisles. Not le- not jiving yet because we hadn't learned to yet. But there was that, that visceral reaction to this Absolutely new sound. This incredible excitement yeah. going on. This was a worldwide social revolution, and it it grew from there. Then you then you got when the Beatles came out and said we'd smoke marijuana, another change, societal change in there. The kids much more freedom. I'm talking about coming from a very straight, disciplined. 1950s Australia. Well, you, you grew up in Rockhampton, of course. Mm. So what was Rockhampton like at the cow time? Cowtown. A cowtown? Cowtown. So it, as in lots of farms? She still has a beef festival. Right. Okay. No, I'm talking about great tracts of... of uh, ran- not ranches, what are they called? Those things out there. The um, cow cockies. Stations. Yeah, stations. Um, and and the cow cockies had the, those big Queenslanders across the top of the range in Rockhampton, mostly built by the cow cockies coming into town for the whatever they did. So your musical exposure, I get country and western, was it all? Dangy, 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 dangy. Yeah, for sure. Not country, not as sophisticated as that. Oh, but, yeah. but so uh, ah yes, and I was down in the cow shed. Chad Morgan, sort of yeah, all of that. Yeah. So um, and Slim Dusty and would tour, I guess. Early Slim Dusty. Yeah, they were the... Uh, was it called Country then? No, it was Hillbilly. Hillbilly, it was before Country yeah, and Western. Yeah, yeah. Hill, Hillbilly. Country and Western was probably a, an American term. Yeah, American term. Yeah. Uh, to try to... But Hillbilly's an American as well, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, that's right. But, but I mean, even, see, even, pre, even at the time that rock and roll was still growing, uh, there was Lonnie Donegan and his skiffle band who were having hits out of England. And that was around about the time that Transition from Bill Haley through to Elvis. Elvis broke moulds all over the shop, you know. It was all very, even even in sort of our period, it was still very much, and you read a lot of the interviews, and I did with Bobby Rydell, what do you want to be when you grow up? An all-round entertainer. We weren't accepted yet. Our parents were horrified. For my 17th birthday, Dad gave me a Mario Lanza EP. <laughs> Did I play it once? Did you? 
But would, you'd seen people like Murray Lanza at the pictures, I guess. Well, yeah, uh, but dad, dad was a huge fan of all those old tenors. Yeah. You know. And dads want their sons to inherit their And dad's, dad had a lovely tenor voice. And he th- uh, he thought, because he was listening to me playing, you know, listening to Rock Around with the Clock and all of those sort of things, I thought, oh, no, 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 this can't be good enough and gave me this for my 17th. And, of course, I was into, by now, and it was all terribly innocent, a lot of that early pop, you know, Neil Sadaka and all of those people. Uh, I wasn't into the greasy motorbike boys at all. Uh, and because I played piano, I related to Sadaka. And here am I in a cow town playing piano. And was I discriminated against? I was chucked off sometimes. They chucked off at me because I played piano. At school. At school. And, uh, but, uh, but I got all the invitation to the birthday parties because I could sit down playing piano. For sing-alongs. <laughs> and that's how, that's how it really it's all. And then I had a phone call. I was... Dad got me, because Dad worked in the railway for 45 years. Get a government job that, you, you know, it'll be a job for life and you can't get sacked. And he got me a job at the stamp duties office. It was one of the biggest yawns in my entire life. I was just quietly going insane, straight from school. How it came about, I don't know, but I, uh, somebody rang me one day and they said, look, we're, we're starting a little, little pop band, little rock and roll band. But it was still the days of 50-50. You had to play the waltzes and the barn dances and the, and the, the Pride of Erin and all of those old-fashioned dances. And then in between those dances, we did the, the new stuff. And in fact, the first track, first song I ever sang in public, really, uh, was uh, Bobby Rydell's Wild One. And we had to sing it three times at the same night because our repertoire was not up to scratch yet, but the, the kids loved it. And we're, we're playing for our own age group rather than, you know, the oldies didn't come, but we still did the old dance. And they rang and they said, well, we've heard you can play all the old stuff, you know. And then Lorraine Fleming, she was only 15 at the time, 13 at the time, uh, will play the pop stuff. And because she played the pop stuff, I sang the pop stuff. And that's how it all started, down at the YMCA on the riverbank of Rockhampton. And it was the, the Rockin' Rockets. And I have one photo from that, that period of all of us on stage, me up front in my cold joy shirt. And meanwhile, I'm working at the stamp duties office and then doing the bloody, you know, the Friday nights or Friday, Saturday nights down at the river. What did your parents think of, of their I'm son who wanted to sure. run away and... Well, it was it was it was very strange because music had always been in our family, and, but I mean, yes, they were they they lived that very straight discipline. They were the children of Victorian era parents, right? You're right. And so my sister and I've talked about it a lot, and it was quite a not restricted, but it was definitely a disciplined upbringing. We were allowed our freedoms, and yes, it was a happy childhood, and we never wanted for anything, even though sometimes they only had a couple of bob to run, run together, or scratched up enough money each week so that I could learn to play the piano, you know. But it was, it was that sort of existence and a very strict Catholic upbringing and uh, all of that. Did they work in the beef industry or were you grandparents? No, no, no. Why were they in My mum was a qualified seamstress, and she taught... And then Dad worked in the railway as a... As a uh, he recorded the distances the trains travelled every each day and totaled up the numbers of So it's like a sta- statistician or something. If you like, yeah. yeah. And he did that for 45 years. Uh, and so that was his attitude, get a job and then for the government and, the, you know, you'll have a job for life. And But I, I had now been exposed to all of this and the, the bug had already hit that I needed to do something. And I went to them one night. I'd come down on holidays, I remember. My first holiday from the stamp duties office. And my sister had since married and her husband's parents lived here at Pendle Hill. And I stayed with them and I saw television for the first time. Rockhampton didn't have telly yet. I'm talking... Late, very late 50s, just into the 60s. 
Sydney, uh, Sydney had television for about five years. That was about it. And Rockhampton didn't. And I sat, I was fascinated by this damn thing. And I hardly saw any of Sydney. I just watched television the whole time. God knows what his parents thought of me. And I thought, oh, hello. And I was already slightly in love with Patsy Ann Noble. And I'd seen her photo in the Women's Weekly. And I went, lub-dub, 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 lub-dub. And, however, the holiday finished and I went, I went back to Rockhampton, but the bug had hit. And finally I said to them one night, I said, I want to go to Sydney to be in show business. And they went away for about 15 minutes and came back and said, all right, go. Just like that. Surprised the hell out of me that, that they did it so quickly. And so I lobbed into... I had done a couple of things in Rockhampton. Uh, 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 Merchant of Venice was one of them. With the amateur theatre system. With the amateur theatre system, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I came down... And a mate of mine from that amateur society had come down just before me, so we shared a place in Coogee. And then I saw one day in the paper an ad, Petersham Musical Society's production of Gypsy Love, starring Patsy Ann Noble, Love Dub, Love Dub, directed by Helen DePaul. Now, Helen was Patsy's mum, but Helen was one of the famous international acrobatic acts called the Flying DePauls. And they just toured the world, they were world-renowned. But she'd put her career on hold to support her husband, who was Buster Noble, who was one of our leading Australian comics. And they toured in vaudeville <coughs> and variety. And uh, Helen was now, had, now had her own dancing school at, 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 uh, in Dulwich Hill. And so... Helen cast me in, uh, once again, it was Gypsy Love, uh, cast me in Gypsy Love, and uh, then I went on to do, I got, you know, noticed, I went on to do Will Parker in Oklahoma for them, and it was starting to build, but it was during that, during that time, because, as I said, Pats was already doing bandstand, and there was a girl in the cast called Carolyn Young, who used to do all the Brenda Lee numbers. But she'd, and she'd already done bits on, I think, Six O'Clock Rock with Johnny O'Keefe. She'd already done a couple of TV appearances. And it's through Carolyn that I got an audition at Channel 7. As I said, television was still very young and they were, they were still auditioning people. And a lot of the people in the background of the, of the television station those days were ex-performers. They'd come from the years of Audible and Variety. And so there was a lot of variety on television. And so they were building. And they were, uh, because of the success of Bandstand, I think, which was still in its infancy at that stage. And that was on, uh, on Channel nine. 9. Yep. So Seven decided they needed a teenage program as well. The, the word had now been coined by that New York DJ, Alan Freed. And so we, they needed a teenage program and, and they brought Johnny O'Keefe across from uh, Six O'Clock Rock. We had Tommy Tico in the orchestra. We recorded at Festival Records. We had the full production values of the Seven Network. Uh, and it was exciting times. So tell me about your audition. You had, you had oh, the audition. <laughs> so, so you read that, well, read that in the paper? The audition, uh, no, no, no. Carolyn got me, I can't remember the connection. Leo, Leon, Leon, Leon. Surname lost in the mists of time. I was introduced to him and I think he would, they, they ran a talent school, which basically was an empty studio with two cameras in it. And they would bung you on camera just to see what you, probably what you look like and if you weren't too horrible. Whether the camera liked you. Yeah. Whether the camera liked you. And because I played, you had to work up your own thing. Because I played piano, I sat at piano, played for myself and sang. And I think I did that only about three times. And they booked me onto Sing Sing. Sing Sing was already up and running with Johnny. But Johnny at that time was now off with the fairies for a little period of time, which, he, which became more and more common. And then Lionel Long was a stand-in comp here. So that I sang one song, I think, on the first show, then I did two on the second, my second appearance, and then Johnny came back and I was cut back to one song. 
And I thought, oh, well, I'm auditioning for Mr. O'Keefe. <laughs> and from there on in, I did my two shows, two songs per show. Uh, and that was the first three years of my career. And that included recording. I, my first record I recorded, ah, my first brush with fame. Uh, the old 2CH recording studios. I went in and it was, uh, Johnny got me, uh, I'm sure he pulled a couple of strings, RCA Records. And I was a 2CH and I walked into the studio and there is Eartha Kitt. And she had just put down some track and we were introduced. You know, she was just lovely. Yeah, that was my first brush. And that went nowhere. And so that I went, they tried me on Lead On Records, which was a, the, virtually the B-grade version of Festival, named after Lee Gordon, uh, that entrepreneur. Uh, and as I said, you know, luckily none of my recordings ever ever uh, charted. I got a lot of airplay, but nobody bought anything. Which is, and years and years later, I got a royalty check for two pounds six and five. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so for that three years, were, were you solely doing sing, 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 or did you have, yeah. to have a day job? Does no, 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 no. We did, but we did live appearances. Oh, okay. Right. And uh, my first, and because see, all of us, we would go to festival, we'd put the track down, they'd give us an acetate, we'd take it home, learn it, learn how to synchronise with it. And so you can't just, when you are miming your recorded track, you can't just do it and not sing because you're not putting the, te the tension in your neck and your throat is not being shown, you know. So you have to sing along with it. Therefore, you have to synchronise your performance with what you've already recorded. recorded yeah. Which is bloody hard sometimes. And uh, <clears throat> so that's what we would do. And then you just rock up, have a camera rehearsal, shoot your bit and go home. And I had no concept of the effect that we were having outside the studio. None at all. Until I began to become occasionally recognised in the street, which can be a touch embarrassing and intimidating. And intrusive. Too. And intrusive in many ways. And that happened much later. as It was still happening when I did Godspell. And then one day I was leaving the studio and Johnny said, and see, this is pretty early days. We hadn't started yet. It, this happened later where we would fly to Adelaide for a week and do six shows, six live, two tellies. Brisbane, six live, two tellies. But th this was would happen later. And I was leaving the studio one day and Johnny was suddenly standing right in front of me and he said, uh, do you want to go to Perth? Perth? I'd never been in an aeroplane. Oh, wow. And the lineup was Johnny was going to do three shows in Perth, 2,500 seater. And uh, the lineup was Johnny, Barry Stanton, Dig Richards, Robin Alvarez, and myself. And so there we were on on the, in the tarmac and in a beautiful prop jet DC six B, seven hour flight to Perth across this beautiful, gorgeous mother country of ours. And we arrived in Perth and. There were 10,000 kids at Perth Airport and they knew who we were. And Johnny and Barry and Dig, who were the big names at the time, went into the terminal to do the press conference and some bloke just said to Robert and I, your car's over there. So we walked down, this, we were walking across the tarmac having a chat and I looked up and I went, oh, Robin, run. There's a herd coming towards you. Kids had found the car. And we got in just in time and all the hands were coming through the windows. That must have been petrifying. It was that and it was terribly exciting and I just yelled out to the driver, go. But here we were on the other side of this vast country and there's kids knew us. My first big lesson in the power of television. And from, that, from then on, you sort of... Not took it for granted, but you were used to the fact that somebody would meet you at the airport and drive to you, drive you to your accommodation. And we usually stayed where we did the 
the live appearances, for example, I played the Lands Office Hotel in, in Brisbane. I would stay there and then they would drive me up to Channel 7 up in Mount Cutha to do the two tellies. You always had to do one, one teenage show, one adult show. And in, 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 in Brisbane, I did whatever it was called, Teen Time or something like that. And then the adult show was named after the Theatre Royal where George Wallace made his name and continued to make his name. And then in Adelaide, you did, you did in Adelaide Tonight and then the Country and Western Hour. It was the only time I sang country on television. And one of the other few things that have been kept, uh, years and years later, Jeff came up to me and said, I've got a video of us <coughs> when we both had dark hair and there were the two of us on the country in Western Hour in Adelaide. And so that was the only, only other thing. I don't know whether it's on a, a video somewhere. Uh, <coughs> but however, that was, that was the first three years. So you're all very much kids learning this new medium of television, the, mm. the power of it, as you indicate. But, mm. but what about the actual just technique of, of working a camera and... Um... It, it can be very odd. Uh, it can be intimidating in the fact that you've got three cameras pointed at you. And, and yes, you do a rehearsal, and yet you're trying to remember what, which one you're facing next. And finally, you think, I'll blow that, I will, I will change focus when I finally see the red light. I won't try to remember when it's coming on. And you become a bit more relaxed about that so that you'll get... I mean, the first time, yourself, the first time you see yourself on telly, I mean, I went, oh my God, that's not me, is it? You know, you know look at the nose. I mean, you see yourself side on. You, I mean, no matter how many times you look in the mirror or you put one behind your head, you, you only ever see back and front. But to see yourself side on for the first time, I think, oh, that's, that was my, look at the nose. Oh, look, and I walk like a duck and I sound so nasally. And you get over that after a while. <laughs> you have to, really, don't you? For the, <laughs> because no one sows a rotten tomato at you. Oh. So it can be very odd. But oh, as I said, you get over all that. And that, and, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a fun time, it was an exciting time, and, and I met some beautiful people, and, and you don't form, well, I didn't, long-lasting relationships as you would do in the, as you do in the theatre because you're not together all of the time. As I said, we just used to rock up, do our bit, and go home. I, I did what a lot of people have called the Bobby songs. So while the while the uh, the you know the greasy hairdos and the and the the guitarists and the the leather jackets were doing their bit, I was singing Bobby Rydell, Bobby V, Bobby Vincent, Bobby Goldsboro, uh, Bobby Helms. There were that many Bobbies. And there were all those Bobbies. Yeah, that was, <laughs> and they called the Bobbies. I think Thorpey called them the Bobby songs, and Thorpey started out doing Bobby songs and had big hits with you know a few, before he found sex, drugs, and rock and roll and turned into the hard rocker. Uh, and so, yes, I was saying, well, the one that that I've got is a, is a 40s song. There I've said it again, is from the 40s. So did that, that repertoire you were singing, did that all come from America or did we have... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And England were busily protecting themselves at the time. And so a lot of the pop stars became pop stars by doing American covers. Scylla Black being one of them. You're My World was a cover of a Dionne Warwick uh, track and they built their own stars by covering American tracks whereas, uh, whereas here it was full on slather, full American uh, imports and things and doing all of that but yes that was my image and it was all, always I think surprised people at the end of when I did live appearances I always finished up with the rock and roll number and that surprised a lot of people because they'd never seen me do one on, on the telly and so that's what uh, I used to do. Uh, and then all of that, it's like eras, it's like all those kids on Home and Away, they do their three years, thank you very much, see you later, never heard of again, you know. And so all of that finished, and Johnny had finally had enough, let's put it that way, I'm trying to be kind. This is O'Keefe. O'Keefe, yeah. And the whole colour of that program changed and I think Thorpey came in to, to compare 
if my memory serves me correctly. And so that whole new field was coming in. It was almost as if a changing of the guard, changing of the generations, going from that early pop into what was now starting to to English, to the English feel, was coming through, heavier rock that was coming through. Merseyside. Yeah, all of, of that was yeah. just starting. And when then the Beatles hit in 1963, whenever it was, and, you know, it's full on. But all that changed. And so our sort of little little period, a uh, th- three-year apprenticeship, as you put it, sort of came to an end. And uh, what was happening behind the scenes what was happening on Broadway was that Julie Andrews was becoming a star in My Fair Lady. In those days, she was a star on Broadway. She was not national yet. So she wasn't known throughout the country. Well, she'd only done The Boyfriend before My Fair Lady. The Boyfriend, and then there was My Fair Lady. Well, uh, I mean, the hit was the album. Everybody 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 had a copy of it. But she was not yet known nationally across the States. And so... Rogers and Hammerstein, who, as you well know, and don't need to, you know, the, the Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, King and I, Sound of Music, thank you very much, wrote, and whether, whether this had been designed or not, but they wrote their own version of Cinderella for her, for television, which would give her national exposure, which it did, and it became... Regular on television year after year, just ran for years in the States. Noel Ferrier was at a point in his career, a great actor, director, writer, what have you, at the point in, where he wanted to produce a couple of pantomimes. And he was to do one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. And he decided to do the first live production anywhere in the world of Cinderella. Rogers and Amistad Cinderella. And it was to be at the beautiful old Theatre Royal on Castle Ray Street. Gorgeous, gorgeous old theatre. But you went down the little alleyway to the to Joe in his in his uh, stage door office, and then up into the little stairs backstage. And it was beautiful. And you could smell the makeup from the nineteen twenties. Beautiful theatre. Gorgeous. Those old theatres just reeked oh, of ghosts absolute, and, and uh, gorgeous and past atmos- glories, mm. and it was demolished in order to build the bloody MLC centre. And at the time, there were no plans to put a, a theatre back, you know, in the in the design of MLC centre. It was the theatrical community that rose up and put a lot of pressure on the government, and that's how we have a theatre royal in the MLC today, which unfortunately is nowhere near the atmosphere of the lovely old one. However, I'm you auditioned on stage and the director was George Carden who had the Carden girls I think at the Palladium for years and years and years and they were, they were sort of based on the on the uh, <coughs> New York City radio musical what are they called the Rockettes all of the girls exactly the same height all the same look one of those and I think George's career is probably winding down in England and he, he was directing and he followed me out into the foyer. And he followed, the director followed me out into the, into the foyer and he said, Dear boy, as they said in those days, I'm looking for four courtiers. He said, this is no, no reflection on your talent, but you're number five on the list. They all have to be six foot tall. I thought, right, oh, the platform shoes, I'm five foot eight and a half, you know. He said, if one of the boys doesn't think the money we're offering is good enough, I'd love you to join the company. And one of the boys didn't think the money was good enough, so I joined the company. And because I was the little fella, I got all the extra bits to do. And it became outrageous because the two sister uglers were John Mellion and Gwen Plum. Now, Mellion, Mellion turned it into the most outrageous... It was supposed to be a children's show. <laughs> no, no, no. We ended up having to do a couple of nighttime performances because the whole thing had got out of hand and it was going over the kids' heads. And there's one incident, we had the terrible scene, where none of us ever did straight, I think. There was myself, Tony Bonner was next to me, Max Phipps and Alan Lander. And it was the looking to find the girl who lost the slipper at the ball. 
And the two Sistiaglis had already tried it and failed. And then the line was from poor Tony Bonner, I think. Isn't there a girl here named Cinderella? And Melian had this cross from down prompt, prompt corner right up to us on OP. He had rollers in his hair, a cotton shift, fluffy slippers, was already listening to the transistor in prompt corner, listening to the cricket, would throw down a couple of scotches. And one day, actually, before he even crossed to us, walked out on stage and said, if anyone's interested, England's two for 175. (laughs) 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 Then crossed to us. Well, this cross took a half an hour. What name did you say? By which time, all three of us, four of us, were in hysterics. I don't think we ever did the scene straight at all. But that was incredibly enjoyable thing to do, and I felt at home, I think, performing for the first time. You had this time to rehearse, learn the damn thing, get solid in what you were doing, and then for it all to happen in company to an audience who loved what you did. You got that applause, which you never get on telly, as you Because the show had gotten out of hand, (laughs) the mob from Williamson's all flew up from Melbourne to have a look, including Pounder. And Pounder was pretty much running the show by this stage. It was certainly the artistic content of what Williamson's did. And I remember whether it it was a rehearsal or it was an after show or whatever, and and it's not important, but she called me out. And she said, darling, could you stand up against the Cross Arts, please? I want to, please, I want to meet you. And, no, sorry, darling, you're too tall. And I went, Miss Pounder, I've never been too tall for anything in my life. And she said, and they were casting the boys from Syracuse. And they already had David Williams, the, the two Dromeos, they had the four Dromeos, as you well know. And the two... Big Dromeos are about six feet. And and then the two Dromeos, the smaller ones, are about five foot five, five foot six. I think she already had an idea that I was looking to diversify my career and learn my trade. And so they cast me as the little policeman. And the tall policeman was Bridie Murphy. Bob Murphy was about seven foot three and built like a beanstalk. And so we matched each other perfectly. I think we were sort of a bit of comedy relief when we walked on stage. But that, that became great fun. H- uh, Hazel Phillips, God love her. We used to get the giggles. And um, Nancy Hayes, of course. Nan- the lovely Nancy. It was the first time I met Nancy. Yeah, we've been friends ever since. So the boys from Syracuse happened, and then almost immediately afterwards they revived Oliver. So uh, Syracuse ran for about six, seven months, whatever you know. And you're learning, 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 learning the whole time. And you're working with great people. And and you had the opportunity to repeat <coughs> the experience every night. <coughs> every night. And fine-tune. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, thing, the thing is with theatre is to keep it fresh because you have a different audience every time. And in a long run, that becomes the challenge, to keep it as though it's the first time you're doing it because it's the first time they're seeing it. And it becomes the challenge to keep it fresh and up. And we hear horror stories of kids on Broadway and on the West End just walking through it now because they've done, you know, six months or something rather than they're bored to tears. And there was one thing Pounder, well, pounded into us. Remember, you've got a fresh house out there and some of them have saved up and saved up and saved up enough money to buy a ticket. And they deserve the best performance we can possibly give them, you know. The other one, of course, is the obvious one. You know, any troubles, leave them at the stage door, dear. Your job's here on stage. I don't care if you... There's that song that, you know, Irving Berlin wrote. Even though your favourite uncle died. Died at dawn and all of that. You're broken-hearted, but but you go on. But you go on, Mm. yeah. So those things were pounded into us, and 
Uh, and Dolores and I still live by all of that, not only in, in theatre but our own lives. If you, you don't take your own personal troubles to whatever job you're doing. You know, just leave them at the stage at all. But of and course, get on with it. Dolores, your lovely wife, is yeah. also a performer. Oh, absolutely. And, and we're coming up to that. Where did you meet? <laughs> contentious. This is contentious. So what, uh, she's got a different story, has she? Yeah. So I'm doing, I'm now doing a clay, uh, Noah Claypole in Oliver. Oliver, which was a revival only about five or six years after it was, after it was first done. And uh, Oliver had been such a hit. They was going to be revived for, I think they had a four-month slot that they had to fill, and which is the first time I met the lovely Tony Lamont. Who's playing Nancy? He's playing Nancy. And I was playing Noah Claypole, and we got on, got on terribly well, and, and Tony's been been a lovely friend ever since. But I, once again, when I look back on it now, Williamson's was still trying me out. You know, I was getting bigger bits and pieces and things to do. They were cultivating... Uh, I think was a lovely word to use. Stars, cultivating. Yeah. And I was learning my trade, and I was, it was doing... Oliver was such a smash... We ran for 14 months, I think. And I think we financed Sweet Charity. It did so well, and it must have been a fairly cheap production for them to get up because they already had the sets and the costumes and the God knows what else. They were also doing Funny Girl. Now, here we were, all the burnt cork brigade in our rags, and all of the Funny Girl girls... Were all terribly show business, glam, whatever, you know. And in those days, they had to turn up to the theatre dressed beautifully in full makeup. Well, in in makeup <laughs> before getting changed and putting on a stage makeup, then taking the stage makeup off and getting back into civvies before they left the theatre. And so there we were, the and there were the glamorous. Funny Girl Girls across the road at Her Majesty's. I think we were playing the comedy in Melbourne at the time. That's when Dolores said we met. But I was so intimidated by all these glam sheilas coming out of the stage door at the theatre at Her Majesty. It wasn't until we got to do Fiddler, which was the next thing that happened. And you were playing the Fiddler, weren't you? Yeah. And Dolores was one of yeah, the Yeah, tell you, I tell you how that all happened about, because Jill had had the big hit in Funny Girl. Jill Perriman. Perriman. And Kevin, her husband, had the big hit in... Pajama Game. And Bye Bye Birdie. And they offered Jill the role of Golda and Kevin the role of the Fiddler. Now, Kevin had quite a few runs on the board, well and truly by then. And the, as you well know, the fiddler neither sings nor says anything during the, the entire show. So that was a big question. And then Jill wondered whether, coming from the height of Fanny Bryce to Golder in Fiddler, was a strong enough move career-wise for her to do. And so our information was that she and Kevin turned it down. And that's how when Bridget Lenehan came up to came in to play Golda, who was wonderful. Dolores had already been cast as as Seitel, uh, the eldest daughter, and so they offered me the Fiddler weekly salary. Thank you very much. I'll do have a crack at that. Even though you weren't singing. Even though I wasn't singing, but we, they used to have company rehearsals and things on Friday afternoons, and that's when it became irregular that we went in for a rehearsal on Friday afternoons. Picked up our pay, went to catch a movie, had dinner, came in and did the show. And that's when this girl started to enter my life. She's also from Queensland. And she's a she's a Cairns girl. Yeah. And she'd come by the doing the hard yards as well. And the tours and the dust and the mud and the slush and all of that in the very early years to do all of that. So how did you work up the courage to uh, ask? Well, we became good mates. So there was a friendship first? It was a friendship first, and we used to ended up just the pair of us doing all of that. And then a Fiddler was a very, very long run, and it, it took time for all of that to develop. But however, then Fiddler was moving offshore, going to, the, to do the New Zealand tour, and I got a little show, a little show called Your Own Thing, 
which was a little rock and roll musical based on I can never either either Twelfth Night temp, where, the Twelfth temp, Night where they wrecked night. on the island the Tempest well the temp, <laughs> that's most Shakespeare's <laughs> it was starring Bunny Gibson and Brian Davies and I played one of the Apocalypse who were the band uh, and Dolores was on tour with Fiddler in New Zealand and the night she got back from New Zealand we had a welcome home party or whatever it is and I got down on one knee holding my breath and said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. I suddenly realised, while she was away, we finally got through to this thick head that I could not live the rest of my life without this girl in my life. And, and that's when that happened. And we were both suddenly terrified. Always marry your best friend. That's all I can say. Tell, says, tell me about Godspell, because that's one of your, your big hits. Yeah. You play Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. How were you cast in, in that show? Well, I think my legacy from the Williamson days paid off. Uh, well, also too, pre, pre that, because I played Snoopy and Charlie Brown, my profile had risen beyond being a little support actor in Williamson shows, you know. There are only five, uh, what, six of us in the cast. There was Charlie and Schroeder and Linus and Patty and, and uh, Lucy. And <clears throat> and I was playing Snoopy. And once it was that Harry and Miller production, would you believe it? And hair was on. Two vastly different products. <laughs> yeah. And because... Harry, in fact, asked me one day, he said, Rod, how do I publicise this thing? Because he was flat out selling tickets and he was trying to sell it as a children's show. And yes, our most responsive audiences were uni students because of the adult ideas that were in the Peanuts comic strip, you know. But he said, and the big posters were in all the railway stations with the cartoons drawn. And, uh, but he said, uh, so it was coming up to Hare's first birthday party and so the Charlie Brown Company got an invitation to, to go. And Harriet hired all of these models, the top Sydney models, and double-decker buses. And we're all invited to go to this hidden venue. And all the models were serving us champagne on the buses, you know. And we ended up down at the Argyle Rocks. And it was the bottom one, the underground, really underground one. The whole thing was lined in silver paper and disco balls and whatever going on. But yeah, out of that, I think my profile had risen enough. And my first reaction was, how in the dickens does she know where I am? And so we had a little chat at lunchtime and I started rehearsals at two o'clock. That afternoon? And never saw the lead or what happened to him after that. And uh, so we had about ten days, maybe a tech or two trial before that, before opening night. Meanwhile, Harry now had Jesus Christ Superstar down at the Capitol, which he'd painted all chocolate brown with the gold angel symbols all over it. From the thing. And Superstar became the event to see in Sydney. He came from overseas, interstate, wherever it was huge. Multi-million dollar publicity, production values, everything else. That was down at the Capitol. And our little dusty group were up the road at the Ridgebrook in Elizabeth Street. And we just worked our little asses off to get this show together because of the fact that I, I was trying to learn the damn thing in time and fit in with everybody. And they were all gorgeous to me. And we opened and the place went nuts. And once again, we looked at each other and thought, what have we done? And we had a huge, big, big group hug on stage and all burst into tears. And it was all too wonderful for words. And 14 months down the track, Godspell closed in Sydney. Wow. Now, they had formed a Sydney company because the original Melbourne company, starring, starring Chris Pate as Jesus, was doing red-hot business at the Russell Street. And we were doing Disney, and, and so we were doing a promotion in Melbourne. We went to see it there. And then when it finished, we walked out and Dottie said, Did you? I said, I absolutely loved it, but God, I'd hate to do it. Because it was so full on and so busy and whatever. Little did I know. 
So after the 14 months at the Richbrook, they pulled me out two weeks early to head the New Zealand company and brought Kit back in to play the end of the Sydney season because he knew the role. That's right. And so that, and that's when my lovely Dolores joined the company for the New Zealand tour. There were replacements and remnants of the Melbourne company. And we became the New Zealand company. And the demand was such, in one stage in Auckland, we were doing 11 shows a week. And so by the time you see photos of us in Christchurch, and we look like stick people. And one night I was up there on the wire, busily, be, busily dying and emoting my heart out, singing, oh God, I'm dying. And someone's child must have run off in the audience. And I'm up to go, oh, and then we hear, Graham, where are you, Graham? <laughs> but they were, they were beautiful. And they, they instituted, because very few productions ever went to Invercargill. There was a mayoral reception for anybody who came. And it was the full, beautiful New Zealand welcome with homemade scones and bickies and cake and all of that. It was just so welcoming and warm and it was lovely. Uh, but yeah, and they, they pulled me out early again, two weeks before we were to close in Christchurch, to do the Australian tour. And I came back to the remnants of, oh, I can't remember now, some of the Sydney company, I think, and, and replacement. And we played the Theatre Royal in, in Hobart, and we played the gorgeous Princess in Launceston. Then we did a, a New South Wales Arts Council tour, which was beautiful. I love doing the country tours. I just absolutely loved it. And we were responsible for getting three-phase electric into Tamworth Town Hall because we had to use three-phase wiring to light the show. And we turned up and the, the people were there to welcome us. They said, oh, that's so no, 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 we've only got two-phase wiring. David Anderson, who was our toolman, said, well, we can't do the show. And this is the afternoon of our opening night. He said, well, we can't do the show. We need three-phase wiring, otherwise we can't light the show. Well, I don't know who got into touch with whom, but that afternoon, three-phase wiring went into the Tamworth Hotel. No, Temple. Theatre Hotel. And we did the show. So uh, that was one memory. Then the other one, uh, other one, right at the end of the tour, and I was coming up now to 700 performances. And it's in Lismore. And they had sold out three performances and the Arts Council didn't have enough money to back a fourth one. So for the first time in our careers, I think all of us, I think we all put in enough to get to the back show a fourth show. Yeah. And Casino was not all that far away. It's only about half an hour in a bus. And we blew up balloons, we had streamers and loudspeakers and got in the else, and we drove all the way from Lismore through to Casino, went down the main road, main street with all the, everything happening. And we sold out the fourth show and all made 30 bucks profit <laughs> from our investment. <laughs> and bought my first car and Dolores and I hopped, hopped in our little moat, piled everything on board and drove to Cairns. So baby, what do you want? So baby, what do you want? So baby, what do you want from me? Touring something you enjoy? Yeah. Because you got to see a bit of the country? Or? And the pair of us are gypsies in many ways and remain so. We love... I'm not a great sightseer, but it was just the fact that you're somewhere new and it's all open and exciting. and Or, or even going back to Melbourne, it's like familiarities from 30, 40 years ago. I remember when we lobbed into, into Melbourne for the, 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 the Melbourne run of the Dirty Dancing. I rewound the tape to my first look at Ligon Street when it was all very Italian and, and wonderful. And you walked all down Ligon Street and it was like, oh wow, you know. And I walked through Ligon Street, it was down a few more little, little Vietnamese places as well, mixed in with the Italian. 
And it was that sort of thing, that familiarity when you're going back to places where you've been as a younger person that I find interesting. What about the audition process? Were, were you Terrified. You weren't a good auditioner? No. no. I think it's a necessary evil, isn't it, as part of this business. If Absolutely. You want a job, you've and, got a job. And have I made the right choice? Uh, of your audition repertoire. Audition yeah. repertoire for, yeah. the, for the piece. And they do, they say, must have, you know like a mid-50s number or something like that, you go, oh, I think I can find one of those. <laughs> Looking from the outside at your career, it seems to be quite blessed. You seem to go from show to show to show. Was that the case? Oh, no, there were... There were, there were the, the, quiet the, periods? The lean times. The lean times, yeah. yeah. So what did we you do? We made the decision after, after Ben arrived, actually. Uh, we toured with him while he was still a, a little fella. Once he started school we decided that he was going to have a stable childhood in the one school and, and give, give him the most stable life, lifestyle that we could. And so we agreed that only one of us would tour. So you'd end up having to turn down something that would normally tour. Because it was your turn to be parent. Because it was our turn to be parent. Yeah. For example, I mean, Ben was only three so we didn't have the problem yet, but it was Dolores's breakout from being mum to going into the best little whorehouse in Texas. Right. And she played a smock, pot-smoking lesbian. <laughs> so that was her breakaway from, and I became the uh, the, the the carer or the, you know the father. Um, Instead of breaking up bickies and, and putting them into what have you, uh, she was off every night being a being an, uh, an actor. An actor. Hmm. Eight shows a week completely takes over your life. Your whole day is planned around. It's focused towards that performance. And and the timing of things. What time do we eat? When do we have time to shop in order to get it to do to, 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 to? So we sit down for dinner at maybe 5.30. And so by the time you get home... You've expended all that energy. You're it's all gone and you're starving and you can't get to bed until half past one or two o'clock in the morning, you know. Because you've got a full tummy. And then, yeah, and then you wake up sort of like 10 o'clock and you're thinking, oh, God, we've got two shows today or whatever. Yeah. And it's once again, it's all planning and getting things organised. So when did you decide to retire from the business? The business retired me. Right. Is that hard for somebody who had been yes, in well, so much work? Yeah, in, in a way, and I wasn't ready for it, and I was still auditioning for things and missing out on them, and I thought, I eventually looked in the mirror and I thought, well, there ain't much around for hair colour, this, this colour, you know. Um, so what was the last show that you did? Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing, was it? And that, that was quite a long tour, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was Butte. Yeah. And once again, we played New Zealand, um, played Auckland. It came to a decision of what in the dickens am I going to do, and I, saw, I just saw an ad, and it was to do with aged care, and the government policy of trying to keep seniors in their own homes for as long as possible. And I thought, oh, I'll go along, and that sort of might fill a hole between shows. And I ended up with a whole new career out of it. Twelve years of aged care, and I've got my uh, certificate three in aged care. I've met some wonderful, wonderful people. We learn so much from our seniors, don't we? It's, well, it's their stories are incredible, and you never look at seniors in the same way again when you hear some of them, of their stories and what they've been through and their histories. And uh, I found the social side of it as very rewarding, rather than just all the cleaning and things you do for them. You know you're helping out, but I mean, the social side is beautiful. And you can't leave someplace unless you have a cup of tea and a bicky or a coffee and a munchie that they've handmade or, you know, one of that. Um, and the occasional limoncello. Very nice. <laughs> Don't know where to get any, mate. I'd love to buy get some. You get to a certain state. <clears throat> you just have to acknowledge the passage of time that you are not 25 your body is not 25 years old anymore I've just recently turned 77 and some people have admired me for working this long 
And they said, I can't believe you're still working, you should have retired years ago. And I think, well, I would have been, you know, bored shitless. Now, of course, I'm at a stage where I'm not bored shitless. I'm enjoying my retirement um, from that grind, that grind. Even the work that I've been doing recently, you have to be on time, on schedule, travel, be on time, on schedule, do that. that, that, that. It's a different stimulation. Different stimulation yeah. it's a, a, and a different discipline, but it is still that. Do you still sing? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Around here. Yeah, great. Uh, my piano has gone to Bilio. I think I've still got the muscle memory, but not the accuracy yet. If I went back to even basics like playing the scales, it would take me time to get back, and I love it, and I enjoy it, uh, and it would take me quite some time to get back to that level again. I would still play the old sing-along stuff, still with not the accuracy. You can play like this when when you're in the zone. You're not even looking at the keyboard. Yeah. You know. yeah. I did get itchy feet sitting out in the audience. I thought I haven't done cabaret for fifty years. And wouldn't it be beautiful to walk out on a stage, on a club, in a club, and just do my own bit for about fifteen minutes? That's yeah. all I would need. You know, yeah. you'd, I wouldn't do a whole show anymore. You don't do forty-five minutes and forty-five minutes anymore. And they really don't want to see seniors on stage. They, they want to see the young, pretty ones, you know. But wouldn't it be good to walk out and, and do just do a few songs and bring my little bit of uh, theatrical experience to it? Not do show songs, show tunes. They'd then be going, what the hell is this? Maybe bring out a big band. Wouldn't that be nice? Huh? Any wonder I turn to the joy of rehearsing theatre Thanks for um, looking back on a wonderful career in the in the arts. My pleasure and yours, I hope. It will be, yeah. Um, uh, it's a bit cathartic. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure there's stuff that I've, I've not maybe skimmed over or forgotten. Or just, if I kept going, it would have been too boring for words and you would have had edit points all over the place. But yes, many, many... I can be very grateful for a career that I've had. Thanks, Roddy. Um, My little friend has just been there all the time. She's great, isn't she, Daughty? Yeah. Yeah. She is... Um, she's my best friend. Your best mate? It's, well, as you said earlier, it's important to marry your best mate, isn't it? Yeah. 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 All right. Let's have lunch. Thank you. You look forward to it. You have lunch. I'm going to... Oh, I ended up all sooky. Uh, that was just pre. I was about thirty there, I think maybe. No, we we were married. No, we were just getting married. Oh, so I was twenty-eight. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, oh, until the face dropped <laughs> uh, while I was doing Marion Street. Uh, <laughs> Duncan, your face dropped. <laughs> Thanks for joining us in this episode of Stages. I trust you enjoyed my conversation with Rod Dunbar. Next, Season 1 of Stages draws to a close with Episode 24. My guest for this episode will be actor Tony Sheldon. Born into a show business dynasty, his career began as a seven-year-old and has taken him to the bright lights of Broadway. It's a super conversation and I was delighted that he could join us. That's next week, the Stages finale for this year. When I interview Mr. Tony Sheldon, don't miss it. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages.